0: You know, the church has a problem, Christianity, Christians have a problem, and one of our problems is fairly simple, it's this, what we say and what we do are not the same. What we say and how we live don't line up, and none of us like people who don't live as they say, right? We don't like that thing, because that thing's called hypocrisy. And whether you're male or female, black or white, old or young, there's something in us that just pushes against hypocrisy. Even if you're not a religious person. You probably don't like hypocrisy and religious people don't like hypocrisy. You know, it's interesting. If you're not a religious person and you have something in you that just pushes against hypocrisy, you already agree with Jesus. Jesus, one of the groups of people he got against the most and just uh, was so frustrated with was the religious leaders and the Pharisees, and the reason was because what they said, and what they did, were not the same, and he came against them so, so strongly. But isn't it true that there is a certain level of hypocrisy in all of us? I mean, let's be serious. Let's be honest. I mean, none of us claim to be perfect, so at some point in our lives, you, and I know I, have said some things And I did not follow through or I did not live the very thing I said I was going to do or should do or others should do. I was a hypocrite. And I think as humanity, we know that we're not perfect and no one's perfect. And so we kind of give enough grace, acceptance to each other that we can have a low-grade hypocrisy in our lives, right? But the challenge is, is when hypocrisy becomes your hallmark, your trademark, the thing you're known for, and unfortunately for Christians... Often we're known for this. Often we're known to be those people who say one thing and yet do something very, very different. You know, one of the claims of Christianity, and it's a call for Christians, is that we're different. Right, we, are, we claim to be different, we are told we're different in scripture, and we are called to be different. We have a different set of values, different set of morality, a different world view. And, uh, and yet, oftentimes, we don't live into that difference and the world looks at us and says, "You're just hypocrites." Interestingly, a couple of years ago, a book came out by David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons, and it's called UnChristian. And Barna is a research group, and they'd done some research, and they found, and it was presented in this book, they found that the difference in behaviors between people who claim to be Christians and people who claimed not to be Christian we were not all that different. In fact, they found no st- statistical difference in these 10 categories, between those who claimed to be Christian and those who claimed not to be Christian. There was no difference in gambling, in visiting porn sites, in taking things that weren't theirs, saying mean things behind someone's back consulting a medium or a psychic having a physical fight using illegal or non-prescription drugs saying untrue things to others getting back at someone consuming enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk between those who claim to be Christians and those who claim not to be Christian it was about the same there was one thing there was one thing that Christians did do less do you want to know what it is true story happens to be recycling. (laughs) Supposedly Christians recycle less than those who would consider themselves not Christians. This is a problem. What we say and what we do are not the same. Maybe you're like, I don't know about statistics. I heard a stat once that 98% of statistics are wrong. I don't know if I trust those stats. But isn't this true from experience? That as we follow in our faith, Jesus, others in their faith, maybe it's uh, Christian pastors or leaders that are well-known, and we've kind of followed them along the way, and all of a sudden it comes out, and they always preached against, you know, impurity, or they always preached against abusing power, and they always taught against, and then you find out that they were having an extramarital affair for years and years. Or it turns out that They weren't that great of a servant leader after all and they were abusing their power and using it over others rather than for others. Or they were taking money from the church or organization and something in you, isn't this true, something in you loses faith in faith. And you wonder, does this faith even work? You know, there's a Kind of buzzword in Christianity uh, in in our world these days called deconstructing or deconstruction, and it's this systematic uh, disassembling, undoing of one's faith. Now, probably all of us along our faith journey do some deconstructing along the way, and some deconstructing is absolutely healthy because there's I bet there's some things that you think and you believe that do not line up with Jesus. In scripture. And so there is this this need for all of us to deconstruct our faith so we can build it back proper. But in deconstruction, oftentimes, the the point of it is just to, to dismantle one's faith so you can walk away forever. You know, deconstruction, though, and here's the interesting thing, often happens not because of who Jesus is or what Jesus claimed, but because of how Christians live. And this is especially true of the younger generation. And they're looking at us who have gone before, and they see the way we live, and they wonder, does that faith even work? And they begin to lose faith in faith, not because of Jesus, but because of those who said they were Jesus' followers. According to Gallup's annual honesty and ethics survey, Americans' trust in pastors and clergy hovers at an all-time low. And of course, there's a generational gap. While 51% of Americans 55 years and older have favorable views of the church and church leaders, only 24% of 18 to 34-year-olds said pastors and clergy have high honesty. And the younger generation is saying, I don't know if that faith works. No, my guess is this was not Jesus' vision. When he told Peter, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it, won't overcome it. I think Jesus had a different vision for those of us who would follow him. That something would change. You know, our mission as a church is to see people become devoted followers of Jesus. And I know I'm trying to build some, you you guys don't trust me because I'm a pastor and that's okay. But just full honesty we didn't make this up, okay? We stole this. We are stealers at the church. Uh, someone really famous came up with this idea. His name's Jesus. We just kind of put it in different words. It came from the Great Commission. But our, our mission, and this isn't just you know, the building, this is ours as followers of Jesus. It was given to us was to see others become what we've become, to see them become followers of Jesus. So what is a follower of Jesus? And here's as we wrestle with this, here's how we define it. It's growing to be someone who lives like Jesus would live. Not to live exactly as he did live because we'd have to be Jewish and male and we'd have to get rid of social media, which is not possible. So, but how would Jesus live in the world that we live in, that you live in as a teenager, as a single mom, as a working dad that's in two weeks, out three, or whatever it is, right? How would you, how would Jesus live if he were in your shoes? And this is all about being transformed into the image of, of Jesus, to become like him. And as we wrestled with this, well, what, what does that all entail? And obviously it's all of our lives, but there's three spheres that are included in this. And it's, it's the aim of discipleship. It's the aim of following Jesus. And we use the word aim because it's an acronym, because... You know, it's cheesy, but it helps you remember things, right? So here's the three areas. A-I-M. It's our actions are transformed into the behavior and actions of Jesus. Our identity is transformed into the identity of Christ. And our mission is changed. Our purpose is changed to be the very purpose and mission of Jesus. And again, we didn't come up with these ideas. We stole them from a really famous guy named Jesus. In In the Great Commission, these concepts come out. And we talked about this last week. Jesus is the Great Commission said, all authority has been given to me. He's talking to his disciples right before he leaves. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Make what you've become, which is you have a new mission. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That has to do with identity. And we talked about that last week. If you, have, if you haven't listened, you've got to go back and listen because this week builds off of last week and this week will make very, it'll be a challenge to get through if you have not listened to last week. Identity, and then Jesus says this. He gets to the actions, the behavior, he says this. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, everyone say it together, obey. obey everything I have commanded you. And I think as Christians, we have read a different word than obey, and it's the reason, the outcome is the hypocrisy that we have so often within the church. What we have read is, and teaching them to know everything I have commanded you. And Jesus did not say teaching them to know. Although knowledge, knowing isn't necessarily wrong, unless it's by itself, then it is. It will not help you. Teaching them not just to know, the goal, the aim of the Christian life is not to know knowledge, to have knowledge about God or about Jesus or about what he commanded. The goal of the Christian life is to be formed into the very image of Jesus. That means a changed life. And I've said this often, you've heard this, but I think often as Christians, we're about 500 Bible verses overweight. And what I mean by that is it's not that, the problem isn't that we don't know enough, it's that we know so much, but we have We have failed to put it into practice. we failed to exercise. It's like eating a high-protein diet but never doing anything. Eventually, you just get overweight, and we know so much. And probably for some of us, we need to go to a Bible study to gain some knowledge, but for many of us, we we need to just practice what we already know. And Jesus said, in teaching them to obey, and this informs our behavior, our actions, and this is what we're gonna talk about today, but it builds off of last week when we talked about identity. And then the Apostle Paul I'll just rehash a little bit from last week. We looked at Romans chapter six, verse one to seven. And Paul talks about this idea of baptizing. And it's this new identity. You've been been made brand new. And there's these declared truths. And it's just unbelievable. You've moved from saint or from sinner to saint. You've moved from, from guilty to innocent. You have been given a brand new identity. But then I said last week, our actions flow out of who we are. And Paul says, you've been given a new identity, but now that plays out. Here's how he says it. We, speaking of identity, were therefore buried with him, with Jesus, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may what? Live a new life. Something has changed. You have a new identity, you died to the old, but now you're living to something new, which is why seven verses later he says, in the same way, count yourselves, what? Dead to sin, that's not you, that was your old self, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires, because you obey someone else now, Jesus, right? And then two verses later, for sin shall no longer be your master. That was your old self. So how? If we're going to teach them to obey, how do we live into this new life and new identity? Well, the Apostle Paul, in another letter he writes to a church in Galatia, kind of works this all out. So if you have your Bibles, go to Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 16. As you find verse 16, I'm going to kind of give you the context. Paul's been talking in verse 13, 14, and 15. He's been talking about this newfound freedom. But he says this isn't a freedom to just kind of live however you want. No, it's actually a freedom from from sin. You are no longer in bondage to your old self. You are brand new. You're in a brand new relationship. You have a brand new identity. And how does this identity work itself out as we are in a new relationship with God? He says, in essence, it works out in two areas, your morality and your relationships with others, because your love for God is shown by your love for others. Your morality and your relationships. And then he says this, here's how. Here's how we live into it, here's what he says. So I say, walk by the Spirit. And if you have a pen or pencil, just underline, circle, walk by the Spirit. And Paul's gonna use the same phrase in a number of different ways, but it kind of all means the same thing. Walk by the Spirit. And this is capital S Spirit, right? This isn't like there's a Spirit thing happening and just kind of find it and then walk by it. No, 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 no. This is God's Spirit. This is when you were made brand new. He sent because you put your faith in Jesus. This is, he's talking to Christians. You put your faith in Jesus. God sent his Spirit into you. So now walk by that spirit. And when you do, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh anymore. And here's why. For the flesh desires what is contrary to what the spirit desires, and the spirit what what is contrary to the flesh. In essence, what he's saying is, the moment you start walking in the way of the spirit, you walk away from the flesh because you cannot go towards the flesh and the Spirit at the same time. And likewise, when you start walking towards the flesh, you are walking away from the pathway of the Spirit. It's kind of like this. You cannot drive to Winnipeg. (laughs) Never mind. none of us would drive to Winnipeg. Let me say it this way. You cannot drive to Vancouver, BC, and Winnipeg at the very same time, right? You cannot. The moment you drive to one, you are going away from the other. And this is Paul's point. They are contrary. They are opposite to. In fact, that's what he says next. They are in conflict with each other. And here's why. So that you are not to do what? Whatever you want. Because here's the things of the flesh. Pretty much every time you and I are caught kind of just doing whatever we want, it's probably the flesh. It's what comes so natural. It's like, oh, that just feels so good. I just feel so good right now to do You know, it just feels so good to retaliate with. It feels so good to react with. Probably the flesh. It's what comes so natural. Then he says, but if you are led by, circle, underline, highlight that. Remember, first he said, walk by now. If you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Something has changed. So what does it look like? Paul, define for us spirit and define for us the flesh. Paul's like, I'm glad you asked. I will define it for you. And then he'll come right back to this concept at the end. He kind of just sandwiches in the middle. Let me give you a picture of the flesh and what it does and a picture of the spirit and what it does. Now, as I read the things of the flesh, there's just a list of things. He lists them. Undoubtedly, as you see this, you're going to think, Oh yeah, when I do whatever I want, it kind of looks like that. Here's what he says. The acts of the flesh are obvious. It's whatever we want, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, and drunkenness, and orgies, and the like... Thank you for stopping, Paul. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's a list of just, whenever you do what you want, it kinda looks like this, doesn't it? Just kinda comes out so naturally. John Stott, in his commentary on this, says there's kinda four categories in this list, because it's like, that's just a long list. How do we kinda break this down? Here's the four categories, we'll read it again, I think it will help you kinda just, just catch it a bit better. He says, Paul's talking about sex, religion, relationships, and drink. Let me read it again. We'll look through it through this lens. I think you'll see it as well. First thing regarding sex, he says, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. To sum this up, it's any time we engage with anything sexually related, whether it's visual or or physical, any time we do where it is not consensual in a loving relationship between one man and one woman in a marriage bond anything. And some of you are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's really restrictive. Is Paul like anti-sex? Which is another thing people are upset about the church. No, no, no. Paul, Paul is not anti-sex. In fact, God is not anti-sex. God is pro-sex. He created it. It was his idea. He is not against it. Do you know what God is against? Pain. This is why God says, this is, this is going to bring you pain. You don't want, I created you for life, not for death. This is going to bring a death to you. So Paul, God is not anti. He is so for you. But here's how it works best. He goes on to talk about religion. Idolatry, which is the worship of anything. Putting anything above your allegiance and passion for God. And witchcraft, which includes, you know, things like a good luck charms, right? When we engage with the spirit world, maybe psychics and fortune tellers and, and the like. It's not the, that's, that's the flesh. He goes on and talks about our relationships. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. If I was to summarize this up as it relates to relationships, it would be this. These things come out. These things happen when we approach friendships and relationships from a purely egocentric perspective. When we, we enter our marriage, when we enter a church, when we enter our friends group, and all we're thinking about is me. And suddenly there's discord, there's jealousy, and there's selfish ambition and rage and factions. and Well, you can read the list. He goes on. Last two, drunkenness and orgies. I think you can probably figure out those ones. And then Paul says this, and the like, <laughs> right? It's like, we could go on, you could go on. You have your own list. It's like, he didn't mention. That's what I do, like, da, da. and the like. And then he says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, and this word kingdom is so, so important, Because often we think about heaven. We think, I just got to, as Christians, say a prayer on earth, live how I want, and I'll get to heaven when I die. But Paul and Jesus especially, they talked about the kingdom, which is different. Kingdom has new values, new rules, it's a new way of living. In essence, logically, it doesn't make sense. You know, if you didn't enjoy the kingdom on earth, what makes you think you're going to like it in heaven? If you didn't enjoy the kingdom of God and were like, I don't want to live God's way, I don't want to live, what makes you think heaven's going to be God's way? That's how heaven works. It's the kingdom of God. So here's the list of, you know, kind of the negative side, the flesh list. Well, what about the spirit list that Paul says there is? And this one is so familiar. I think sometimes we just kind of skip over it. But Paul says this, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, like bearing, patience, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This isn't stuff that we came up with. When it says this is the fruit of the Spirit, it means this is the stuff that comes from your Father in heaven. This comes from God, and when God, when you live by the Spirit, these are the things that come out of you. You know why? Because they came from Him. Now, I think sometimes as Christians, we have maybe a bit of a skewed view of the fruit of the Spirit. And we think, well, if it came from God, then it's all God, and we don't have to do anything to produce it. And I think that's a, a misunderstanding. See, I don't know if you can sit in your room long enough for forbearance just to come out of you without doing anything. Right? I haven't met anyone where patients just like, oh yeah, I, I didn't even try, it just kind of came out, you know? It's like I was just so patient. I don't know what's going on. Right? It's like, oh man, like self-control. It's like, I didn't do anything, it just cut like self-control. No, it comes from God. That does not mean that we're not involved. This is so so important. Think of it like this: it's like oil. Every every illustration breaks down, so you can break this one down, but. We don't make oil out of nothing. Maybe you can, but currently we aren't, right? Where does it come from? It comes from the earth. Its source is the earth. Does it just come to us without us doing anything? No, we didn't make it, but we do have to work to access it. And this is the Christian life. That these things are something that we have, have, have part in and seen produced in us and he says but through the spirit is these things and against such things there is no law to which we're all like duh right i mean why do why do laws get created here's why to curb behavior right it's like laws are created because like you can drive this fast but you cannot drive this fast we are curbing your behavior right we're going to create a law because you can say those things but you cannot hit him we are curbing your behavior, right? You can hit them, but the moment you kill them, we are curbing your behavior, right? Laws were made to curb behavior. But here's the thing, we don't curb this behavior, right? It's like, ah, come in, come in, come in, come in. Your peace has just gone too far. <laughs> Two years in prison, right? You're done. Gentleness, you've gone way too far. That, you, we don't curb this behavior, right? Because it comes from our heavenly Father. It's sourced in him. And as we live into that, it changes everything. So how do we live into this? And how do we not live into the other list? And Paul goes right back to where he started, and he defines it both in the positive and negative. He speaks to both. Here's what he says. Those, in summary, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Underline, circle, keep in step, because we're going to come back to that. Now, I'm going to talk about these two uh, separately, but before I do, I want to talk about a concept that, uh, again, I reference it with the fruit of the Spirit, but I think we've got to work it out a bit more, and it's this idea that the Christian life is just something that happens to us, and we are passive agents. That is a wrong idea about the Christian life. Let me describe it in Christianese terms, and I'll try and explain it in as kind of layman terms as possible, justification is completely all a work of God. Justification is what I talked about last week. It has to do with a declared truth, an identity. You do not work to get justified. You cannot earn your way into God's good books. You cannot earn your way to be declared saint rather than sinner. You cannot earn your way to be declared innocent rather than guilty. This is what God does and he did it before the creation of the world that those who are in him would be declared righteous, would be declared holy. It is all a work of God. We simply receive it by putting our faith in Jesus. Like, thank you. You did it all. Justification is all a work of God, but sanctification is a work of God and us. We are participants in this aspect of the Christian life. It's why I said, if, if, we, if you think the fruit of the Spirit is just gonna start bubbling out of you by sitting in your room, it probably isn't. Self-control will be something that you participate in. Forbearance is something. Patience, long-suffering is something you will participate in. It comes from God. You did not originate it. But it is something that we participate in. See, your behaving like Jesus is a work of God and You. You're behaving like Jesus is a work of God and you. The way I, I, I said it last week is, we do not work for our salvation, right? That's all God, he did it all. We do not work for it, but salvation does work, doesn't it? And last week I said, there's, there's kinda of two stems to this tree. The first stem is what we talked about last week. Salvation actually works. Like, you actually have a new identity. You've actually been declared something. Wow, this actually works. But the other stem is what I'm talking about today. It's the sanctification piece. It's the being formed into the image of Jesus in our behaviors piece. And that means salvation does work. That we are saved and that salvation starts to work in us and starts to change us and we become participants with God's spirit. He initiates. We respond and our lives begin to look different. Here's the way the Apostle Paul said it. Those, here's how we kind of, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. How do we get rid of the old? Here's what Paul says. Here's how. Crucify. See, Galatians 2.20, our verse for the month, says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. uh, Crucifying the flesh is something that happens when we put our faith in Jesus, but it's also something that we participate in. We are called to crucify the flesh. That's what Paul's saying. In fact, go back to Romans where we read at the very beginning. He says this, in the same way, what? Count yourselves dead to sin. Is that not you and I participating? Yes. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. That is us participating. In fact, in Colossians chapter 3, 5, Paul says this, put to death the old nature. Like, this is a command for us. Put to death the old nature. In Galatians, in our passage, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified. And I wonder if for some of us in the vices that we face, we have taken too passive too passive an approach to sin. It's like, "Oh, yeah, I kind of did. I kind of tried." And I don't ask you, "Have you crucified? Have you have you?" I mean, this is extreme. This is an extreme response to the vices and sin in our lives. Here's, here's a couple things about crucifixion. Crucifixion was total and complete death. We hear crucifixion we're like, "I don't know, there's this Easter thing." In the first century, they lived in a Roman world. They knew crucifixion. It happened all the time. This was Roman capital punishment. And everyone knew crucifixion was total and complete death. When Paul says, crucify your old self, they're like, oh, that's like total death. Here's the thing about crucifixion. There were no survivor stories. No, not one. No one was like, hey, yeah, crucified, but live to tell of it. (laughs) Nobody. Jesus didn't even survive crucifixion. He did not. He died fully, completely. God raised him to the dead. (laughs) Amen? But he died. Crucifixion was so. Here's the other thing. Crucifixion was death, a slow but guaranteed death. See, the way it worked is they'd hang you on a cross and eventually you'd suffocate and the, the, the people hanging would push themselves up with their legs. And there was a Roman guard that would stand by. And the moment's like, ah, it's taking too long for them to die. Break the legs. They can't push up. They die faster. And I wonder, as as people saw this, crucify the flesh, if they got this picture, it's like, we're to stand at our own cross. And that's my old life. And that's the old desires. And I'm going to watch it die. It may be slow. It may be a process of my entire life. But I'm going to watch the old me with its selfish desires die. And when it's not dying fast enough, I'm breaking in the legs. I'm gonna be extreme about sin in my life because God is extreme about sin because it brings death and he wants you for life. He wants you for life. Does this mean that we will like, attain perfection in this world? No, but hopefully your falls are a little less hard and a little less often as you get formed into the image of Christ. Well, if this is the Christian life, who wants that? I mean, the Christian life is costly. I mean, we'd look at this and say, I don't know if I want to be a Christian, right? That's, That's really costly. But I want to invite you to ask a different question. Not what does it cost. The more important question is this. What's the cost reward? Isn't it true that we all do things that cost us money? I mean, half of you go to Starbucks when you go to the city. There is a cost to that right? But you're like, the reward outweighs, right? It's like, there's a cost to the new car, but the reward, the hot tub, the reward, right? We gauge everything by this question, and this is the important question, and this is actually what Jesus gets to when he talks about discipleship in Matthew 16. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. That's like a dying. Everyone's like, whoa, that's like Roman talk. Cross and follow me. There's a dying to the old and a new. And I think all the original here is like, ah, I'm gonna rethink this discipleship thing. That's costly. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. The question is not how much does it cost? The question is, what's the cost reward? And that's where he goes next. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You want real life, full, abundant, eternal life, the way you were created for kind of life? Jesus is like, it's gonna cost you your life, but you'll find it. Real true life. That's something worth dying for. What good is it? He leaves this question with us. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their soul? The Christian life does cost, but the reward is so worth it. You're behaving like Jesus is a work of God and you. And we've talked about the the negative side, right? Crucify the flesh. What about the positive? How do we live into this new life called following Jesus, called the fruit of the Spirit? Here's how Paul says it. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And in this phrase, he goes back to verse 16, verse 18, and verse 25. He just reiterates those three things all over again. And what are they? He says, live by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, and keep in step with the Spirit. And all of these are a work of God and us. All of these are initiated by God and responded by us. We live by the spirit because he gave us the spirit. Now we're called to live in submission to it. We are led by the spirit. He takes the lead. We are called to follow that lead. We are called to keep in step with the spirit. As he moves, we move. This is called the Christian life. To turn from the old and walk into the new identity, that's already been placed on us and allow it to affect our actions and our behaviors. You know, all of this is one thing, isn't it? It's a relationship with God. It's a connection to God. So the question is, how do we live in a relationship with a connection to God? And there's so many things. We don't have time to go into it. Andrew said you got to cut all that, right? But I'm going to give you three. Three things, and they all have to do with connection. You will not be able to live by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, and keep in step with the Spirit if you are not connected to God's Word and connected to prayer. Because God's Word is the most clear way that He has shown Himself and given us the good news of Christ. We are going to need to, at some point, connect to God's Word, connect to God through prayer that's communion with God. And thirdly, this one might catch you get connected to God's people. I'm convinced, and Scripture is over and over says we cannot follow Jesus alone. You cannot just by yourself in your own little huddle, constantly hear the voice and follow the, uh, the, the leading of the Spirit. It, it happens in community because God's Spirit is housed in people. And when we come together, this is the temple. This is the, the place of God. And so we need each other. And as people speak into your life, there's gonna be things that you didn't see that he was wanting you to see, and you're gonna see it through others. You won't be able to live by the Spirit, walk with the ste- Spirit, and keep in step with the Spirit apart from being connected to his word and prayer. And there's a host of other things we could go into, but at minimum, these ones. In fact, there's a, speaking of our connection to people and our connection to God, uh, last year, there's a TED Talk by, uh, Johan Harry or Harry, and uh, this is there's a phrase that's been kind of bubbling around Mount Olive with our counselors and Pastor Wayne, and he made a comment. He said the opposite of addiction is connection. We think the opposite of addiction is sobriety, but he said the opposite of addiction is connection, and you can't overcome your addiction when you're disconnected, and we can't overcome our vices and live by the Spirit if we're not connected to the spirit through his word and through prayer and through God's people and that's going to take some work cuz there's some God's people that I don't really like and there's sometimes in reading the word or engaging in prayer is just hard but that's how we respond to the leading of the spirit you're behaving like Jesus is a work of God in you god and you You know, I started the message by saying the church has a problem. What we say and what we do are not the same. There's a generation and a group of people that look at the the Christian faith and they say, does that even work? And they've lost faith in faith. But imagine with me, starting here at Mount Olive, this group of believers, we said we're going to take our journey with Jesus serious. And there's some things that are going to be crucified and I'm going to stand on guard and make sure they die. No matter how much it costs me. I'll get people involved. I'll get counselors. I will, I will do, I will leave no stone unturned. God wants this for me. He wills it. And so I know he's on my side. So my will will be conformed to his. And I'm going to step into relationships that challenge me. I'm going to look consider what it looks like to be in step with the Spirit. And here's what I imagine we get to participate in. Where it was once said in Nehill County, I don't know if I want to be a Christian, because I knew one once. Instead, we'll be said, I don't know about this whole faith thing, but I sure hope my son marries one of those, because they're the best wives, the most faithful, kind, I don't know about this whole faith thing. I don't know about Jesus, but I sure hope my daughter marries one of those because that self-control from that person, he's a follower of Jesus. Wow. I don't know about this whole faith thing, but I hope to work for him because those Christian employers, they're just different than the rest. I don't know about this whole faith thing, but I hope to hire one of those Because those Christians are the most honest. And boy, they aren't perfect. But they own it. And there's something different about them. We will not gain perfection. But we are called, as we are formed in the image of Jesus, to join in what God is doing in us. Submitting our will to his. Be formed into the image of Christ. And we pray, Father. It's a hard message because... This is where the Christian life really hits the road. And it's such a blessing that you declare truth over us. But you called it, you, you, your desire is that it'd be so much more than just a declared truth. That it would be played out, worked out in our lives. That the old life that brings death and sin to our current life would be done away with. Because you came to bring us life and life more abundant. So Father, wherever we are on the journey and wherever this message lands on us, would you give us the wisdom to know what to do and then the courage, the courage, no matter the cost, to step in and do it because the reward is so worth it. We pray this in your name, Jesus, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.